one night I was just watching um, the TV show Disappeared on YouTube and I thought, oh, you know, I haven't read about, you know, ident- unidentified people for a really long time. I'll... This is Layla Betts. She lives in Queensland. But I met Layla on the online forum Reddit. I thought, you know, like I see subreddits dedicated to missing persons. I see subreddits like my, my local subreddit where I live. There will always be posts about a person that's gone missing or a dog or a cat that's gone missing. And I found it really interesting how people could come together on that online community and help to resolve these situations. So I just got onto a few different subreddits one day, started posting about this case. Can you tell me about the case? Yeah, certainly. So it happened in Virginia. Two young men were driving in a car along, I guess it would be considered a pretty isolated stretch of a roadway. And unfortunately, they crashed. And both of them were killed in the accident. Now, the driver of the car was identified. He was identified as a young man called Michael Eric Hager. And he was identified, I would assume, from the registration of the car or having identification on him. But they didn't know the passenger. They didn't know who the passenger was. His family and friends were questioned about it, but they weren't too sure either. And it it kind of really didn't go anywhere. The law enforcement did obviously investigate as much as they could, but no one could say who the passenger was who was driving with Michael Eric that day. Why did they call him the Grateful Doe? They referred to him as Grateful Doe because he had a Grateful Dead t-shirt on, a concert t-shirt, and he had two ticket stubs in his pocket from a recent Grateful Dead concert that happened in New York. There were a few more things that were found around the scene or in the pockets of Grateful Doe. There was a lighter, he had um, some jewellery on him, and he also had a note. And in that note, he was referred to as Jason. And you guys solved it? Yeah, so I followed the post since probably 2004 or so. That's when I first really heard about it, and that's when... I started becoming really acquainted with the internet and that's how I learned about it initially. And I thought, you know, there's nothing I can do alone. You know, I'm just a single person here in Australia. Like, even if I contact someone, you know, law enforcement in America, they're going to think I'm crazy. And then in 2014, when I started making the Reddit posts, I started seeing so much information coming forward. I started posting to Reddit subreddits that were relevant to the case. So I posted to a subreddit dedicated to the Grateful Dead. I posted to the subreddit Unresolved Mysteries. I posted to the subreddit for New York, for Virginia, and for other sort of states around that line where the Grateful Dead had recently toured. Now, how we got the big lead was I posted to IMGA, which is the image hosting website that is primarily used by Reddit users, and posted on there about the story. It ended up on the front page with over half a million views, a couple of thousand upvotes, a couple of thousand comments. And then one morning I woke up and I had a message from a man who said, the Grateful Doe looks like um, somebody I knew in college. How did that make you feel, helping identify this person? shocked. 
<laughs> shocked would be the best way to describe it. It's it's quite an emotional thing as well, you know. I have shed a few tears about it in the past because it's really beautiful. And the one thing that I have always said is I didn't do this personally. I always say our community did it. It was everybody on Reddit, Inga, Facebook, Web Sleuths, the Fish Forum that was really dedicated to it as well. It was all of those people commenting and making sure that that story got out there and that story was shared. Why do you think you do it? Why do you think you spend your time trying to solve missing persons cases on the internet? I work full time, so I do this on my lunch breaks. I do it when I get home from work. I do it on my weekends. So I don't think I'm I'm doing it for any other reason other than, you know, these are people that they need a voice too. I think it is wanting to make the world a better place and wanting to make the world a safer place, but it's also that there's a part of me that, you know, if if I was unidentified, I'd, I'd want someone rallying for me as well. And if I was, if one of my loved ones was unidentified, I'd want the help of such a big community as well. Welcome to Think Digital Futures. I am Miles Herbert. I will be with you today, filling in for regular producer Shane Anderson. Today's show in two parts. Part one, how the digital age is changing everything from forensic science to policing, and how communities and citizens like Layla are turning to the internet and coming together on social media to help solve crimes and keep each other safe. Layla and the community of Web Sleuths on Reddit spent years finding answers, and helping identify the man previously known as the Grateful Doe. It's fair to say Jason Callahan would never have been identified if not for the internet communities that use social media to rapidly share information and chase down leads. So are detectives and forensic scientists learning from the internet investigators? And is the digital age changing how crimes are solved? That's a very interesting question. I, I really have to take you back to a more general question, which is how the internet really changed um, you know, our lives. Um, you know. This is Claude Roux. I'm professor of forensic science and the director of the Center for Forensic Science at UTS. Claude thinks that the changes to policing reflect how the digital age has changed us. We spend most of our time online now. So if we interact with our friends online, do most of our shopping online, and really just live on the internet. It makes sense criminal activity and policing will be there too. In the good old days, if I can say that, it was really all physical. So we're talking about someone stealing your wallet or stealing your your car, and that would leave some traces. But what happened since the internet, a lot of people, you know, live online, do things online, and maybe in the beginning it was, you know, only for very, you know, big IT fanatics and and, and and tragics, if you want, but very quickly, uh, now I think any, you know, no one can really live without the internet. So a lot of the behaviors and a lot of the activities that used to happen in, in, in the physical world now happen in, um, in the digital world. So it created a, a very blurred world where the physical world and the digital world are put together. And to understand how the internet and technology has changed the way Claude goes about solving crimes, we need to know how the digital revolution has changed the way criminals commit them. 
if you wanted to go and commit a, a, a you know a murder in Parramatta and going from UTS, what he should what he should do or, or avoid to do, uh, and then very quickly we came to the conclusion it's almost impossible because uh, first so he would have to switch off his phone. Um, if he takes the train, he would have to be careful because there are a lot of CCTV cameras around the place. He couldn't use the Opal card because that would maybe the you know his Opal card is probably linked to his credit card. Normally he's got his phone always on so the fact that his phone is off just at the time of the crime would also leave some interesting information. Claude makes it sound really hard to get away with a crime nowadays. Dodging CCTV cameras and avoiding a digital footprint sounds almost impossible. Everything you do creates a small digital trace. Every time you get a text, your location can be pinpointed. And there's a record of every purchase you make when you tap your card on the F-Post reader. Even jumping in a taxi nowadays is traceable. When you get in an Uber, there's a digital receipt of where you were and where you're going. But all this information, it doesn't always make Claude's life easier. You know, very simple example. You, this morning, I arrived in my office. You know, I logged on the UTS computer. You know, immediately by logging on the computer, I, I, I would leave... Uh, my username, I would leave a password, uh, there would be a log registered somewhere. So there are a lot of traces that are uh, that are recorded on the computer, on the network, and, and so on. So it's the, the, the quantity and and the, the volume and the speed of the data is in an order of magnitude that it never existed in the physical world. So there's just there's more information to be analyzed. Yeah, there is more information and it comes faster and faster. If I take the physical world example, if someone goes, you know, to your place and and steals something or, or, I don't know, you know, kill someone and then the police will go to your your bedroom, I'm sure they, you know, there will be stuff that, that was there in your bedroom that is not related to the crime. And then I guess a good crime scene examiner would have to try to recognize what traces are relevant to the crime and to isolate and protect those and analyze those. Now, in, 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 you know, with the Internet and the digital world, you know, the, the quantity of, of, of data um, you know, is so huge that it, it's becoming more and more difficult to really isolate and detect what, what's relevant and what's not. And that's where you come in. Instead of going it alone and relying on analog investigative techniques, the police and crime scene investigators are embracing the digital age and turning back to the internet to help them deal with this onslaught of digital information. I think it's definitely true that now the internet and social media now are, you know, are, are part of any communication strategy from, you know, police organisations around the world. It's pretty clear, uh, and and I think any police forces and 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 around the world, you know, are, are, are very serious at taking that as a as, as a you know communication channel. There is no doubt about that. No, we, we're definitely not vigilantes. I mean, we're This is Peter Price, CEO of Crime Stoppers New South Wales. Peter helps the public help police. So the relationship between Crime Stoppers and the police is obviously significantly close. Um, I like to use the word umbilical. So we have an umbilical relationship with them. Crime Stoppers started in 1976 in the United States. One night in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a petrol station was knocked over and the man working that night was killed. Local police were struggling for leads and decided to set up a tip line so that the community could help. 
More than 40 years and a technological revolution later, Crime Stoppers are still doing the same thing, just in a different way. You can't walk into Crime Stoppers. We are basically a contact center. We used to be called a call center, but things have changed, so now we're a contact center. The digital age might not have invented the crowdsourcing of criminal investigations, but Peter thinks it has significantly broadened the reach and ability of citizens to help police solve crimes. Look, the digital age has obviously it's, it's, it's blown our numbers out significantly because it's all about um, creating opportunities for people to contact you. So if people are sitting on public transport and they think, well, actually, I do have something to share, they can open up their browser and they can share it right there and then. They don't have to go and find a call box or a public telephone somewhere and secretly sort of you know, put their hand over their mouth and just try and you know, provide us with information over the phone. So the digital age has provided, I guess, opportunity for people um, to engage with us more frequently and obviously with a lot more ease. The public has helped police solve crimes in Australia on more than one occasion. In 2015, remains of a child found near a suitcase alongside a South Australian highway were found by police. With no way to identify the remains, investigators put out a call on social media asking the internet for help. There was a call put out through the media for information um, to the public and two two tips came through and as a result of that that case was cracked wide open and that was a significant case and obviously you know the public being able to help us is 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 invaluable the remains were identified as two-year-old candelise kiara pierce she has been missing since september 2009 and it was thanks to tips from crime stoppers that her murder was eventually solved South Australian police said they received over a 1,000 tips from the public. And it was the 1,267th and 1,271st tips that provided them with the critical information they needed to put the puzzle together. But like Claude said earlier, that is a lot of information police have to sort through because of the advent of the digital age. And as most of us know, not all of the information on the internet is good. So give you an example, someone on, on, on Twitter may say, oh, my, you know, my, my, my dad wants to kill me. Now the question is, is it because the person, you know, smashed the dad's car and, and just says that, you know, in a very colloquial manner, you know, saying my dad is very angry <laughs> or, or, or is it a real, you know, real situation where there is a real danger that, uh, uh, you know, the dad wants to kill that person? And, you know, with 144 characters, I think it's very difficult to detect that. There's definitely an overflow of information on the Internet. In addition to Crime Stoppers, there is Facebook group after Facebook group and subreddit after subreddit dedicated to online investigations. But Peter isn't just worried about information overload. He thinks people might be starting to take that information into their own hands. Instead of reporting to the police what they know, they might turn to Facebook and post their tip publicly hoping to help someone else on the internet solve the case, which in some cases might make it harder for police to solve the crime. So the internet might not just be slowing police down, but these web sleuths might be seriously impeding their criminal investigations. There has been an expanding number of organisations, especially online, who want to get involved in the solving crime thing, and, and that's absolutely fine. But you have to be careful between, you know, about who you're providing this information to and what are they going to do with this information. They're actually people who genuinely have an interest in actually improving community safety. 
but sometimes you can find they don't really understand the legal parameters in which they're operating and they can sometimes fall foul even though their intentions are actually quite good. Part two of our program. Police and investigators are enlisting internet communities to help solve crimes and keep communities safe. But what happens when groups on Reddit and Facebook circumvent the traditional criminal justice system? Uh, my name is Dr. Michael Solder, and I'm a senior lecturer in criminology at Western Sydney University. What is online justice seeking? Online justice seeking is taking a lot of different forms. Um, in the early days of the internet, it really was discussion forums and it was sort of true crime, sort of sleuthing, people trying to crack cases together. When we look at a forum like Reddit or even Facebook, it tends to take a more investigative approach. So people will work together and collaborate on trying to crack a case and there are really good examples of this. In the United Kingdom, there's been you know, a, a number of years now where the government's been trying to set up and run a large public inquiry into pretty serious allegations of child sexual abuse, including the complicity of politicians in the sexual abuse of children. Like most public inquiries, it was taking a long time. For three or four years, the government in the United Kingdom failed to get the investigation up and running. They were accidentally deleting evidence. The chairpeople of the commission kept resigning because they had links to men that were under investigation. It was a complete disaster. So a group of survivors and lawyers set up their own inquiry. They ran it online. They ran it through Twitter. They, they used crowdfunding platforms in order to basically get funding for their own inquiry. They released an independent report into child sexual abuse uh, in the UK, and they launched it in, in, in Parliament, and they, they're continuing their investigations to the present day. And it really is only the internet and it's only social media that makes this kind of activity possible. We couldn't have done this in the 90s, even just with, you know, the, the sort of pre-social media approach to, to the internet. But not all online justice seeking serves the greater good. There are a crazy number of social and political groups seeking justice online. And just like the traditional criminal justice system, justice looks differently to different people. We can look at the recent U.S. election and um, the so-called Pizzagate conspiracy, which was somewhat similar, a group of people reading through Hillary Clinton's hacked emails and sort of divining this secret code in uh, her staff member John Podesta's emails, and they thought they'd uncovered a, a, a human trafficking conspiracy. And it resulted actually this year in a man you know, walking into a Washington pizza restaurant and discharging a weapon because he believed that it was the centre of this conspiracy. So that's also online justice seeking, but it's terrible. So what pushes people to seek justice online? Why are they doing it? I think at the core of online justice seeking tends to be the disenfranchised victim, um, the person who's made a complaint to the police or the justice system and has had a poor experience, um, hasn't seen the outcome that they're looking for, uh, and then they decide to take matters into their own hands. Michael thinks that even though they are coming from completely different ends of the spectrum, 
survivors of child sexual abuse, and far-right conspiracy theorists turn to the internet for the same reasons. They feel the system doesn't represent them. There is a cohort of people out there that feel disenfranchised and feel like they can't trust the justice system to act in their own interests. For some people, you know, that's, that's the end of the story, but it's unsurprising that other people are finding forums like the internet where they can air this grievance and they can kind of pursue their own impulse and their own instincts towards justice, whatever that means to them. And that can take constructive forms and it can take really destructive forms. One of these destructive forms is the phenomenon known as doxing. When we use the internet uh, over a period of years, we leave a sort of trail behind us of breadcrumbs and tidbits of information and things that we've said, you know, that we might have believed 10 years ago, but we don't believe anymore. Doxing can take a lot of different forms, but really it's just digging for dirt on the internet. Doxing is the, um, the gathering of normally publicly available information and then the, the, the gathering and the releasing of it with the intention of intensifying scrutiny on that person, abuse and harassment uh, of that person. We saw doxing happen last month in the United States when neo-Nazis took to the streets in Charlottesville, Virginia. Internet communities quickly started trying to identify the men and publicly out them on the Twitter account. Yes, you're racist. But this form of justice is completely new. It completely circumvents police, judges, and juries. So I think a lot of this online justice seeking is designed to put pressure back in the criminal justice system. But when I think about doxing, I think of it as kind of like a new form of criminal justice that the internet invented in and of itself that has created a brand new punishment that is completely outside the criminal justice system. Yes, this is the example of sort of online punishment par excellence. And so the use of doxing and then the targeting of people's employment and the attempts to have people fired, this has become just a default move by sort of online justice-seeking mobs. And, you know, depending on where you sit on any particular controversy, this can feel really cathartic and really compelling that someone's being held to account. But we're seeing this used extensively by both the left and the right. We're seeing this used by people complaining of a crime and people accused of a crime. Getting someone sacked has become a kind of a goal. Uh, And I think it's immensely unethical in this economy to think that denying someone an income and impoverishing them and their family is in any way an ethical or a just outcome. And it's coming back to bite everyone at the moment. Yeah, what happens if the public just gets it completely wrong? The public does get it completely wrong. (laughs) They can make mistakes. And, you know, that has huge implications for the person who has been implicated wrongly in an an offence. But online... Um, there can be an entire communities of people that gather around this this person who's been named and and in in order to harass and abuse them, and they've done nothing wrong. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures. This show was produced on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. Think Digital Futures is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more info, head to 2SER.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. And remember to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I've been Miles Herbert. 
We will catch you guys again next week. So your job's not under threat by uh, by a teenager in a basement? <laughs> no, I think uh, you know that always existed, really. You know, I mean, you know, you know. There is a, a great exhibition, the Powerhouse Museum at the moment on Sherlock Holmes. And if you, you know, you, you visit that and you realize that, you know, that um, everyone wanted to be already a forensic scientist at the time of Sherlock Holmes or Conan Doyle. So um, I, I think it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it added a layer um, because now everyone is using the internet and social media. And...